Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. We're in Luke, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Back to Hebrews. Had a little break for a couple weeks <clears throat> through our chapter and verse study. Uh, it's not uh, the norm to take a book and stay in it for till you're done it, the whole thing. And certainly when you use this style of teaching, you hit some really hard things to say. So, Happy New Year. I'm saying some really hard things. I'm not upset at anybody. I don't dislike you at all. This is what Hebrews chapter 10 is all about. Okay? So, verse 26. Here we go. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two to three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is one of the most terrifying passages in all of the Bible because it sounds like I heard the gospel message and I believed it. I prayed to Jesus, but if I tempted and sin or I'm struggling with a vice, there's no forgiveness for me. And I lose that salvation and I can expect fiery judgment. Now that is most definitely a problem for me because I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior when I was six years old and I got baptized when I was 13. Now probably none of you have ever done this, but since I was six and since I got baptized at 13, I've done a whole bunch of things that I know are sin. I have lied and stolen and cheated. I've said and done and thought perverted things. I have cursed, broken the law, disobeyed my parents, eaten like a glutton, drank till I was drunk, been lazy, been foolish, been bitter and unforgiving, prideful, fought with people, I've gossiped, been unkind and unloving. And since I've done all that, since I claim to believe in Jesus and his word, one could just say, well, McKnight, you're one big fat hypocrite. Any hypocrites here? Oh my, look at all the hypocrites in church today. How offensive. I've done sinful things, repented of those things, prayed for forgiveness, and then done them again. As Proverbs says, like a dog to his vomit. You ever seen your dog eat his vomit? Yeah. Well, let me let me try that again. Right? So a fool to his folly. Been there, done that. And then I read Galatians chapter 2, and the apostle Peter is offending the Gentile believers, treating them like they're unclean, and the apostle Paul gets in his face and rebukes him for that. 
And then I read Acts chapter 15 and Paul and Barnabas get into a big disagreement and they split as partners in ministry and go separate ways. And then I read all through the New Testament, Paul writing to the churches, the brethren, and he's correcting them, addressing their fighting, their disunity, their drunkenness, their immorality, their carnality, their foolishness. And even though he's rebuking them for all these sins, he still calls them brothers and he affirms their faith and hope in Jesus. I read of King David committing adultery and murder. Moses' anger management issues, Abraham's blatant disobedience, Elijah's depression, Jonah just running from God. How do we reconcile the fact that all of those sins are committed by people of faith? And what about the doctrine of forgiveness? Where John writes, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to Cleanse us. Boy, don't we pray that one all the time, right? Or Jesus' words where he tells us to forgive one another and not just one time. Amen? Aren't you glad, husbands? Aren't you glad you, your wife has to forgive you a lot? I'm glad we have these verses, right? Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, so that's not even seven times in life, that was seven times you know, since Tuesday, Eliana, just Tuesday alone, that was, you know, I had to ask for forgiveness. Repent, you what? You must forgive him. That's the doctrine of forgiveness. Sounds like people go on sinning, and uh, even the Apostle Paul admitted about himself the conflict of the two natures within him. In Romans, he says, I know there nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good in there. I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who does, does it, but it's sin in me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who can save me? Who can deliver me from this body of death? But then, according to Hebrews chapter 20, verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. I can never be forgiven of the sins I've committed after I believe in Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 10. Well, that seems to contradict all the other things we talked about, the overall messages of Scripture. The author of Hebrews is contradicting the rest of Scripture. Or we're not properly interpreting what the author is saying. We're taking the author's words out of context. Hmm. I wonder which it is. I remember when I was in seventh grade, my youth group was going skiing. I wanted to go skiing. I was like all excited about this. All my friends were going. Now, funny thing, even though I grew up in the great white north, never been skiing in my life. My parents, to my knowledge, never went skiing. It's, uh, it's kind of expensive. You, you, you got to have all this equipment. And if you don't have it, you got to rent it. And uh, it's also, you ski in the winter. And it's always very cold in Canada in the winter. And it's a sport. And two things my mother doesn't like. Cold and sports. So she wasn't interested in either one of that. But uh, nevertheless, 
And I was in seventh grade. I wanted to go. And they said, sure, go ahead. So we met at the church at Saturday, early in the morning, drove two hours to Crab Mountain to ski for the whole day. And we get there and you spend the first hour just going through the line and getting your equipment. You got to get your poles and you got to get your skis and you got to get your boots and then you got to get your lift ticket and they give you all this gear and they say, good luck. You know, don't try to try not to kill yourself or anyone else. Have fun. And out you go. So the first thing you got to figure out are the boots. Anybody skied? You know what these boots are like? Okay, these boots, you strap them to your feet and then you cannot bend your ankles. You, you, you have to just clomp with them. So, but that's not a big deal because, uh, you know, I, I grew up skating. So I understand that there's certain type of footwear you wear for different type of sports and you can't walk in skates either. So they really don't work until you get on the ice and then they work great. So I understand this. That's not a problem. I get those on. I clomp outside with my poles and my skis. And they showed you inside, okay, here's how you put these things on you. You kick the toe in here and you stomp down there. And then you're locked in. And you do that here. And then you're locked into your skis. And now you're ready to go. But then once you're in those things, you got to figure out how to move, you know, because you're not on a hill. You're just standing there on the ground. And it's, it's not really intuitive. You know, you can't walk in them. So you kind of have to slide and pull and slide. And when you first get in them, the first thing you do is you, you, yeah, and you fall down and you're laying on the ground. And, uh, that's good because you're going to do that all day. <laughs> and the first thing you got to learn about skiing is how to get up. Okay. So you're laying there and you got, you know, you got this, the skis and the poles and you got to figure out how to, you know, get your, get them together. Because you can't do it like this. You got to get them like this. And then, you know, and when you're overweight, it's really hard, you know. So. Fortunately, I was a teenager. Now I'm 52 and I can't even get up like this without. So you, you, you get up and, and then you're up. And it's like, okay. And that's the first lesson. And you do that about three times, just getting to the bunny hill. And they say, go to the bunny hill. And you go to the bunny hill. And then at the bunny hill, uh, the, 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 the ski slope has the chairlift, you know, where you sit down and you cruise up the mountainside, not at the bunny hill, they just give you a rope and uh, it's just on a pulley and it just keeps going. So you just, you, you know, you, you get up there and you're supposed to grab this handle and as soon as you grab the handle, guess what happens? It pulls you and you fall down and then you're laying there like a turtle on its back and there's all these people in line going, who's this idiot? And, and they're waiting, so you gotta roll out and do that again and get to the back of the line to try again and then halfway up the bunny hill, you fall again. And then you got to, now there's a line of people coming behind you. They're going to run over you and back up and fall. So you roll out. And finally, you get to the bunny hill. And uh, I'm going to ski. Okay, this is cool. I'm going to ski. So what do you do? You just point yourself and go, right? You just slide down the hill. I mean, because I've sledded my whole life, and sledding is fun. But in sledding, you sit on your bum, and uh, you just sit there. Well, guess what? Skiing is a whole different world, and it's much faster. So if you lean back too much, you fall. And if you lean one way, you spin around and you fall. And if you get your skis crossed, you fall. And uh, that's, what, that's what I did. For three hours, uh, I just went five feet and fell, six feet and fell. And finally, I got going. I'm like, woohoo, I'm doing it. And now I'm getting to the bottom of the hill. And it's like, how do you stop? Uh, oh, oh, well, I don't know how to stop in these things. So you either run into people, the lodge, or you, you fall. And guess what I did? I fell. 
So I did that for three hours, and then at lunch I took a break, and I went inside and ate a poutine, and then I was like, okay, I've been on the bunny hill all morning, and I'm done with this, I'm going to the big hill. And so I went out, and I got to this chairlift, and I, you guessed it, fell getting on the chairlift, and I fell getting off the chairlift, and then I went to the big hill, and I fell going down that hill all the way down. I wiped out so bad on one of those runs, my poles went flying, my skis went flying, my hat went flying, and I spent 10 minutes just staggering around trying to, you try to put the skis on and not go down the hill because you're on the hill, you try to get them on, and then you just, so I got them on and I went 20 more yards and wiped out again, and that was, that was the whole day. And, uh, but you know what? I just kept at that, and uh, by the evening and the night skiing, guess what? I was skiing. I could go up the lift, and I could get off, and I could go down the hill, and that was one of the best days of my life. And I went skiing every year after that with my youth group, and then when I came down here to college, we were uh, at Washington Bible College, and we went up to Pennsylvania, and we skied up there, and I skied different hills, and then when I became a youth pastor, I used to take the youth group skiing every year. We would go, and I would ski, and I was good at it. And then in 2000, we moved, and I never skied again for 20 years until Christmas break two years ago. We said, let's take the boys skiing. So we got Ricky, and we got Tony, and we were skiing, and uh, I was kind of nervous. Because you know, I haven't done this in 20 years. You know, I don't want to flop all over the hill again and the bunny hill and all that. So I went out there and got my skis and, and got up there. And sure enough, it all came back to me. And I could ski no problem. Maybe I fell once or twice. No, don't tell. And uh, we don't want to talk about anybody else's skiing. And then, uh, then, then we did it again last year. We went again. And man, I had a great day. Ricky and I were just bombing the hills all night. And uh, I never fell at all. So if you said to me, hey, can you ski? I'd say, absolutely. Want to go? Who wants to go? I'll go with you. All right, we got some people want to go skiing. We now have a skiing ministry, just like that. That's awesome. You know, well, aren't you afraid of falling, Pastor Rob? You're kind of old now, right? You know, no one's thinking, you're kind of old. You're going to fall and break something. No, I don't fall. I know how to do it now, and I don't fall anymore. Ooh. Oh, yeah? Well, I bet you if you went snowboarding, you'd fall. I bet, I bet you were doing some of those ramps and some of that extreme skiing, you, you'd fall. I bet you if we took you out in a helicopter, took you up to a mountain, and we just launched you out into the, into the powder down the mountain, you'd roll all down that mountain. Okay, yeah, yeah I, that, all right, I'll admit I would fall then. I wasn't talking about that. Well, I bet you you'd fall if you tried figure skating, and you're doing all those twirls and all those jumps. I bet you'd fall right on your butt doing that. Uh, Sure, sure. I would fall if I was figure skating. I bet you'd fall if you did gymnastics. If you're doing backflips on the balance beam, you'd fall right on your head. What? What are we talking about now? We weren't even talking about that. How do we get to gymnastics? Well, you said, Pastor Rob, and I quote, you don't fall anymore. And I'm just proving you wrong. There's all kinds of things you do that you'd fall. Okay, I think we got off topic now. I said, I don't fall anymore in the context of skiing this way, getting on the chairlift, getting off the chairlift, and going down the, the green and the blue hills. Not even talking about the black diamonds. I'm not even, we're not even going to talk about that. I didn't say anything about snowboarding or jumping out of helicopters or figure skating or gymnastics. I didn't say it was impossible to me for me to never fall again in my life. 
You're taking my statement, I never fall, out of context. And this is my long, elaborate illustration to prove to you a point I'm trying to make in Hebrews chapter 10. Are you still with me? The author all along in Hebrews chapter 10 has been talking about one point. What is it? Jesus is better. You got to believe in Jesus if you're going to come to God. He's convincing a Jewish audience why they ought not to go back to the Old Testament Judaism, go back to killing goats and sheep while Jesus' sacrifice is better. Don't abandon your faith in Jesus. There's five warnings in this book. The first warning, Hebrews chapter 2, don't neglect this message. He says, pay close attention to what you've heard. Don't drift away. This message declared by the angels proved reliable and every transgression of disobedience received is retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's the first warning. Second warning, chapter 2, take care, brothers, lest if any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from God. If you have an evil, unbelieving heart, you fall away from God. Second warning. Third warning, if one falls away from faith in Jesus, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Hebrews chapter 6. It's impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the power of the age to come, if they fall away to restore them again to repentance, since they crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm, and hold Him in contempt. Warning number four is what we're doing today. And then warning number five is in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, our God is a consuming fire. Listen to him. If you neglect listening to him. So five warnings. I wonder if you see a pattern in any of these. First one, neglecting the gospel message. Second, departing from God because of an evil, unbelieving heart. Third, falling away from believing in Jesus' sacrifice to trust in another way. Here we have going on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth. Specifically, he, he even elaborates on it in chapter 29, trampling underfoot the Son of God regarding the as unclean the blood of the covenant. That's what he says they were sinning and doing. And then refusing the word of God. The warnings of Hebrews chapter 10 needs to be interpreted based on the overall context of the book. So when he says, if you go on sinning, just like I said, I never fall. What was the context of the statement? If we go on sinning, it was, is he talking about overeating, lying, gossip, watching pornography, cheating on a test? What was in his mind? All sin in general, all acts of disobedience, or in Hebrews, is there this is there this specific sinful act that the audience is doing or in danger of committing that he is speaking directly of? See, I think any and all sins is not what he's talking about. What is the specific sin? If people do, they will not be forgiven. Well, he says it in verse 29. He says, how much severe punishment do you think you'll receive? Who has trampled, he who has trampled under, on, underfoot the son of God, regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. If you go on sinning doing that, all the warnings of Hebrews are dealing with the same problem. The person has decided, I don't believe in Jesus. So the first one was neglecting. The second was departing from God with an evil, unbelieving heart, falling away, believing in another sacrifice, 
going on sinning, trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding it as the, the unclean, the blood of the covenant, all of it is saying the same thing. I don't believe in Jesus. It's different ways of saying the same thing, but these people are basically dealing with, I do not believe in Jesus. Question, is that a sin to not believe in Jesus? Well, if I said to you, I, Rob McNutts, I am the son of God, trust in me for salvation. And you said, I don't believe you, you are ridiculous. That would not be a sin because I'm not God. I'm just lying. Sin is disobedience to God. God never said, believe in Rob McNutt. But since Jesus is God and he proved himself to be the Messiah and God commanded to his people, listen to my son. Remember when he got baptized? This is my son, listen to him. That's what he said. The God's word, the old, the New Testament, all point to the Messiah as being the way. If you don't believe in Jesus, you are disobeying God, and that is, that is sin. And so neglecting the gospel message of Jesus, departing from God because of an evil, unbelieving heart, falling away from believing in Jesus' sacrifice or trust in another way, trampling underfoot the Son of God regarding the, as unclean the blood of the covenant, refusing the words of God and Jesus, is the sin of unbelief. This is the specific sinning that the author is speaking of. So if someone goes on sinning willfully, specifically someone goes on trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding his blood as unclean, insufficient to pay for his sins, insulting the Spirit of grace, then there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. God gives you this blood atonement, and you throw it on the ground, stomp on it and say, that's not acceptable. What else you got? The answer is nothing. This was it. And there isn't any other sacrifice coming along. So I was a real picky eater when I was a kid. And many a supper time ended with me uh, not eating my food, gagging on my food, getting spanked for that, and going to bed with a big fight. One day we were visiting some friends from church. I was a little guy, and we were sitting there at this lovely Sunday dinner, and all dressed up in our Sunday best, and they gave us some mushroom casserole, and uh, my mother was like, eat this, you're embarrassing me, eat this, eat this. And she was shoving that in my mouth, and I <coughs> gagged it all up at the table, and my dad took me into the bathroom. And yeah, so that was my life. I got a lot of that. So when uh, we had kids, Eliana and I said, I said, you know something I don't want to do? I do not want to uh, fight every night and beat my kids over food. And we agreed. So we weren't going to do that. I did it once, and I shouldn't have, but I did lose it one time. Uh, anyway, so we determined. We're not going to spank them and force them to eat stuff they don't like, but... We're not going to give you any substitute meals either. So you don't want this one? You can just wait for the next meal. Don't like supper? That's fine. Next meal's breakfast. No food available. Kitchen's closed. It's this or nothing. And so one night at supper, Eliana made some chicken balls, and three-year-old Robbie didn't want to eat them. I'm not sure why. Didn't like to look at them. Didn't even want to try them. 
And we said, okay, well, that's it. No dessert, no bedtime snack. He said, I agree to these terms, sign the contract. I, being of sound mind and body, agree to no food until 7.30. It was bedtime. And he said, Mommy, I'm really hungry. And Ileana said, well, there's chicken balls in the fridge that you didn't eat at supper. You could have those. And he said, okay. So she gave him a cold little chicken ball <laughs> from the fridge. And he was going to bed with his little chicken ball. <laughs> and he takes a bite and he says, oh, mommy, this is so good. That's when you're starving. <laughs> a cold chicken ball is really good. And Ileana said, well, it was a whole lot better at supper time when it was nice and hot with some sweet and sour sauce. But, you know, hey, knock yourself out. So Robbie learned. If he rejects supper, he better be ready for nothing. See, that's the point the author of Hebrews is making. You go on sinning. You go on disobeying God, you reject the gift of his son. His life was sacrificed for this very reason, to save you of your sin. His body was broken on that cross. His precious blood was poured out to be the price to pay for your sin, to enact this great new covenant that the prophecies of all the Old Testament were talking about. And his blood is held out to you and you slap it out of his hand and you stomp it on the ground and you say, that's not good enough. What else you got? Well, first, the Peter says in Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we get this, Jesus' blood, we get Jesus, or we get nothing. And you know what else? I need to say something. It's not so much for you here. I'm just going to throw this out to Western society and post-Christian America, all the false teachers that stand in the many pulpits across this nation who are watering down the gospel, saying God loves everybody and all are getting into heaven regardless of what you believe. To those preachers, I say, you are trampling underfoot the Son of God. You are regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant because you dare to deny God's word and say, all religions, all faiths, all roads lead to God. No, they do not. There is only one way that leads to eternal life and all others are leading to hell. And if we soften that message and we offer them some other means, then we trample Jesus underfoot. We, in essence, are saying his sacrifice, that wasn't necessary. Jesus was pleading in the garden of Gethsemane, that night before he was nailed to that cross, Father, if it was possible, take this cup from me, if there's some other way. And what was the answer? There's no other way. They sacrificed Jesus on that cross. But now you want to say, oh, well, actually, there's a whole bunch of ways, and you know, let's all, you know, buy coexist bumper stickers and slap them all over our cars. You know, that's so much nicer and kinder to just let people believe whatever they want. Is it? <laughs> not when we read this. It's not kind to let people go to hell in their lies. Verse 27, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Oh my, we're not supposed to talk about hell anymore. I, I thought that was too harsh and scary. Not very loving. Jesus loves everyone. Well, maybe we ought to pay more attention to what Jesus actually said as opposed to what 
people say that he says. Wouldn't that be smart? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. You know, just so you know, I'm not making stuff up. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And you will note the red letters, which tell you this is Jesus talking, the Son of God. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practicers of lawlessness. And then you go to Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus talks about the time of his return and this big judgment. And he says in verse 31, 25, Matthew 25, 31, the Son of Man, when he comes in his glory with all of his angels, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats and he'll put the sheep on his right side and the goats on his left. Notice what he says to these goats on his left, verse 41. And he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed ones, into eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I was in prison. You didn't visit me. And they themselves will answer, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger, naked or sick or in prison and didn't care for you? And he said, truly, as you, to the extent you did it, not to the ones of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishments, for, but the righteous go to eternal life. And then we see what it says here in Hebrews chapter 27, fury of fire. Want to know what that is? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. He's not just speaking allegorically or metaphorically. This is what is declared in the last book of the Bible. Revelation 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon its presence, earth and heaven, fled away, and there is no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged out of the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and hell gave up the dead that were in it. And they were all judged, everyone according to their deeds. And death and hell were thrown into a lake of fire. That's the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is a fiery judgment prepared for all those who have sinned and all of us have sinned. We're all going to hell. Not just people that listen to ACDC. All of us. Right? But Jesus is our Savior. That's why he's, we call him our Savior. He's saving us. What is he saving us from? Sin and Hell and eternal damnation. When he died on that cross, he died in our place. But when we, he, because of, he's God, he didn't have to stay dead and he rose again. And then he made us a promise. If, if you ask me to forgive you your sins, I'll do it. I died for you. I rose again. I'll give you eternal life. He will present his shed blood to God the Father when you stand at that great white throne with all your sins and the books are open and they're all going to read all the things you did. Guess what? 
Jesus is going to say that Rick really believed in me and my blood is for him, Father. And God the Father will say, that's all wiped out. That's all blotted out. That's all gone. I accept Jesus' sacrifice, his punishment for you. He presents his blood. And because of that, you're saved and you don't have to go to hell. You'll be forgiven. But if you've rejected that, if you've rejected Jesus, you're already on your way to hell. You're a sinner. Hell is hot. You're going there. Happy New Year. That's the message. That's the warning of Hebrews chapter 10. The author says, and then he does one of his more famous how much greater arguments here. Look at this one. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 28. He says, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This was going on in the Old Testament. How much more severe punishment do you think will deserve those who trample underfoot the Son of God regarding unclean the blood of the covenant, which was sanctified and trusts and insults the spirit of grace? So again, we're talking to a Jewish audience, and they know from their law of Moses, they, they, they execute all their lawbreakers by stoning. That was, that was part of what they did. Look at this. This was Deuteronomy. Uh, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of the father or the voice of the mother, and though they discipline, he won't listen to them. Then his father and his mother, they'll bring him to the elders at the city gate, and uh, they shall say to the elders, this is our son, he's rebellious and stubborn, and he, he won't obey our voice, and he's a glutton, and he's a drunkard, and the men of the city are going to stone him and put him to death so that you will purge the evil from your midst and Israel will hear and fear. Woo! Imagine that. I wouldn't have got past 13. <laughs> That's strict for disobeying and dishonoring your parents, the death penalty. Well, if the law decreed that for dishonoring your parents, how much more severe punishment do you get for disobeying God and disrespecting the Son of God and insulting the Holy Spirit? That's what he's saying here. For we know him who says, verse 30, vengeance is mine. I will repay. The Lord will judge. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What we see in the news, all different parts of the country, people just boldly and brazenly walk into stores and grab stuff and walk out. There's a whole bunch of people run in there, grab stuff, run out. Without any fear of breaking the law. I've seen, I've seen videos of people sitting in traffic and then somebody comes up and smashes their window out and grabs stuff right out of their car. Nobody thinks about break, worrying about the law, the, the police, you know. We see, uh, we see the cities on fire, looting, and, and the police are just standing down. They're not doing anything. People don't expect to get punished. Don't, people don't even think they deserve to be punished. Well, how do we get here? When did, when did we become such a lawless society? I think it started right here, right here in churches. When we stop telling people that their sin is deadly and God will judge them, hell is real, and it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Godless people have godless homes, raise godless children with no fear. And that expression, we'll put the fear of God in them, doesn't mean anything because nobody, nobody even believes in God. So why would they fear him? And that is the sin that will never be forgiven. There remains no sacrifice to pay for that offense. If you go on disobeying God, not believing in God, 
rejecting Jesus, there's no salvation for you. So that's the warning. And specifically, I want to say for a moment to young people who've grown up in church thinking, you know, I, I, I've, uh, I've been watching YouTube and uh, I've seen some arguments on the Internet and, uh, boy, they make, they make some good points. And uh, I, I think I've figured out that, you know, church is wrong and there's no God. And I've seen people with, you know, high school diplomas watch a few videos on YouTube that question God in the Bible and they conclude, I've done my research. I figured out there's no God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, did your research. Wow. Yeah. Did you get, did you get all the facts? Sometimes people get caught in echo chambers, just listen to only one side of the argument. They just listen to what they want to hear. I know a lot of people with master's degrees and people with doctorates and people who study antiquities and ancient languages and people actually go to the Holy Land and dig in the dirt and make archaeological discoveries. And they would disagree with you. But you know, you've watched a few atheists online ask some intriguing questions, and you're convinced you got it all figured out? You got the whole universe figured out? Be warned. Nobody, not even the greatest debaters and the greatest scholars of all time, as they have looked at Jesus, they have all had to concede. You cannot disprove Jesus was a real person who died and rose again. That evidence is undeniable. Furthermore, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Word of God that have all come to pass, those are undeniable facts. Did you study all that? But, you know, you think you can ignore all this evidence because it's not what you want to hear. You, you, you think you've come to a logical conclusion all the while rejecting 3,000 years of recorded history? Be warned. Well, that's what we get today. We get a warning. Dear friend, please take it to heart. Like I said at the beginning, I'm not upset. I don't want anybody to go to hell. You know, all the energy I put out here, that's to just help you hear this warning. It's very serious. You know, last week, Jason brought it up. I, I watched this young football player, football player collapse on the field during that Buffalo Bill game. And, uh, you know, all these best athletes in the world, these big, powerful men, what'd they all do? Ooh, and all of a sudden, it's okay to pray in the NFL. All of a sudden, everybody's on their knees, all these powerful athletes. And all of a sudden, ESPN has got broadcasting to the, the nation, broadcasting to America, people praying on there. You know what? That was wise. That was wise. When your life comes to an end, you're about to meet your maker, you're going to need a savior. And Jesus is our salvation. It's him or nothing. So you need to be ready. You could be ready right now, right here, right now in this place. Every head bowed, every eye closed. All you have to say is, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I'm going to trust in you that you were sent here to, to die on the cross, to pay the price of my sins. I don't want to go to hell. Please forgive me if you will ask him. That's what he promised in the Bible. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will make you new. Are you going to be perfect from here on after? 
No, probably not. Are we going to try to help you with that? We're going to do our best. And we're all going to try to help each other. And we're all going to try to disciple each other to be like Jesus. But the main thing is, is that you will admit that. Show humility. Please, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Please make me your child. I want eternal life. Lord, we pray that somebody here today, just in the quietness of their heart, would whisper that. We know, we know that you will enter into our hearts. We know that you hear our innermost thoughts. They don't have to say it out loud. They just got to say it and believe it. And Lord, you would listen and you would write their name in that book of life. And they know what they would have eternal life. And Lord, we want everyone to have that. Help us to be bold. Help us to be strong. Help us to not water down this message, Lord, till everyone knows of you. May we be true to this vision. We pray this in your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.